Take your Bibles and uh, let's turn to a very obscure verse that you probably wouldn't think of as a Christmas verse. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. I'm speaking on the subject, names for the baby in the manger. We don't have children's church today. Everybody's staying right here. I'll be mindful of that and try to say some things that really are on the level of our children. Um, But uh, we'll get into some of the deep truths of the Word of God as well. Before I even read one verse here, verse 4, uh, the Lord is blessing our church, and especially with, at the beginning of a new year, we're looking forward to having several new babies born. And uh, people uh, think about names for babies, you know. Did you know the most popular name for a baby in 2023 was Noah for a boy baby? Noah's most popular name. Uh, he, Noah knocked out Liam. So sorry, Liam's. We've got several in the church here. Uh, you have been supplanted, okay? The most popular girl's name this year, 2023, was Olivia. Now, were these names chosen because of their meaning? I'd say in most cases, probably not. Uh, the name Noah means rest, comfort. That's great if that's why you named your boy Noah. Olivia is Latin, not surprisingly, for olive tree. And uh, I doubt that anybody just really wanted to memorialize an olive tree, uh, and that's why you named your daughter Olivia. Now, the Bible does speak, in Psalm 128, it does speak about children being like olive plants round about our table. But the point I'm making is Bible names really meant something. When somebody was named a certain thing in the Bible. It wasn't just because their dad or granddad was named that in most cases. In the case of believing parents, the name they chose for their child really showed something about their faith. And here, an obscure prophet in Israel, by the name of Agur, we have no idea who he was. We have no idea where he ministered. But he says something here that just pardon the expression, knocks my socks off, gets my attention. In verse 4, he says, who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Question mark. Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Question mark. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Question mark. Who hath established all the ends of the earth? A whole series of questions here. What is his name? And here's the thing I want to zero in on. What is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Staggering question there, the second one. If you were to ask a Jew the first question, he would answer without hesitation. If you said, what is his name? Who's done that? Without any hesitation, he would say, Yahweh. But if you were to press him further with that second question, what is his son's name, he would probably remain strangely silent, or if he spoke at all, he would say something to this effect, it is blasphemy to even insinuate that God has a son. And yet here is a verse tucked away deep in the Old Testament that unambiguously attributes ascension to heaven 
and the creation and control of the whole universe, both to God and to His Son. Isn't that staggering? Wow. What a great springboard for some reverent meditation on the names given to the Christ child, given to that baby in Bethlehem's manger. I don't think it will be a waste of time to do this this morning. There's more than one. There's several. Isn't it wonderful that it takes several names to comprehend the nature and the worth of Jesus? What is His name? What is His Son's name? The answer to that second question takes us beyond Proverbs to Isaiah and to the New Testament Gospels. Let me give you five names. There are others we could point out, and some will be subdivided into others. But first of all, what is His name? What's His Son's name? His name is Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Of course, that harks back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Maybe you know this verse by heart, so you don't even need to turn there. But we often quote it at the Christmas season as well we should. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign, King Ahaz, a wicked king, by the way. The Lord shall give you a sign. You piously said you didn't want a sign. You didn't want to tempt the Lord. So the Lord's going to give you one anyway, and not just for you, but for the whole house of Israel. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Isn't it amazing that the the name for this child in the manger was not God for us? We're troubled, we're plagued with a utilitarian God these days, or people that have invented a God that's utilitarian. They just kind of rub the bottle expect the genie to jump out and say three wishes and do their bidding. We've manipulated God. No, it's not God for us. It's not God above us. That would be God aloof from His creation. It's not God around us. That is pantheism. But it is God with us. Emmanuel. You know, in the Old Testament, God localized His presence between the outstretched wings of the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the mercy seat was. That's the place where once a year the high priest, and only the high priest, in garments of humiliation would go in and offer sacrifice first for himself and then for the sins of the people. And if God accepted him and didn't zap him right on the spot, he had a rope tied just in case that happened, they had to pull him out. If God accepted, then the the sins of all the people and His own sins were covered for one more year. God localized His presence in the Holy of Holies. But hallelujah, when we come to the New Testament, the Bible says that God tabernacled Himself in human flesh by means of the virgin birth. That was the only way that God could be with us and we could know it. I think we do well to just meditate on that wonderful word, Emmanuel, God with us. It means far more than meets the eye. It means that the whole Godhead is engaged on our side, resolved to bless us. Maybe you're 
asking the question in your mind, but how can we be sure that Jesus of Nazareth is Emmanuel? Well, thank you for asking the question. I'll answer it from the Word of God. Would you take your Bible, keep your finger in Proverbs 30 if you care to, though you don't have to. We'll refer to it. It's such a short phrase. But would you turn to Matthew chapter 1? We didn't read from Matthew 1, though it is one of the accounts of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is what the angel said to Joseph, awakening him at night and telling him to go ahead and marry Mary, or wed Mary. Probably easier to say it that way, wouldn't it? And uh, that, that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, the angel, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, verse 22, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, and he quotes Isaiah, the passage we just read from, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name, there it is, Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You say, Pastor, you're repeating yourself. No, no, no. Listen carefully. Did you notice what I noticed? Mary and Joseph were to call his name Jesus, and the angel appeared to each of them to tell them that. They were to call his name Jesus. Why? To fulfill the prophecy that said they would call his name Emmanuel. Jesus equals Emmanuel. Now, it's one thing for God to tell us, I'm with you. It's another thing for Him to put, we can say it reverently, to put skin on and prove it, isn't it? And I'm so thankful that when God came to dwell among us, He came with skin on and He came to stay. It's time to meditate on the fact that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, and that's the ascension is referred to here in Proverbs 30, verse 4. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, He didn't cease to be with His disciples. No, as He had promised, He sent one just like Himself. That's what the word paraclete, one called alongside to help. One just like Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And He is with us till the end of the age. The Spirit of the glorified Christ. I know we're dignified Baptists, but if somebody wants to just cut loose and shout, you can help yourself. That's something to shout about. So I ask you, what is his son's name? Emmanuel. God with us. What is his son's name? We could turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we would answer, wonderful, wonderful. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, for unto us a child is born, that's the humanity of the child, unto us a son is given, that refers to his divinity, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, singular, his name, singular, shall be called wonderful, and then the word wonderful is ascribed to all the things that follow. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, the name wonderful means miraculous, and it goes with each of these other designations. By the way, this is not the first time we encounter this word that's translated wonderful here, first time in the Old Testament. 
I won't have you turn there, but in Judges chapter 13, verse 18, we have the story of Samson and how this mighty hero of Israel, his father Manoah, was told by an angel, actually Manoah's wife, that, um, that she would have a son miraculously. Manoah wanted his wife to find out more about this miraculous son. And so when she approached the angel, she asked, what is thy name? And the angel answered in Judges 13 verse 18, why askest thou after my name, seeing it is secret? The word secret there is the same word as wonderful in Isaiah 9 verse 6. Of course, what happened there in the book of Judges in this account, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It was what we call a theophany. Oh, I'm so glad that what we read in Hosea chapter 5 verse 2 is just illustrated clearly throughout much of the Old Testament. The goings forth of this one who is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, not Bethlehem of, of Galilee, not Bethlehem of Zebulun, Bethlehem of Judea. The Holy Spirit is precise. His goings forth would have been from of old, from everlasting. Jesus had no beginning. And He's wonderful. He's miraculous. But let's take these words that follow because wonderful describes them, modifies them. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Jesus is the wonderful advisor for every need of life. Thank God for us who know Him as Lord and Savior. According to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, He has been made unto us wisdom. He proved His wisdom at an early age, didn't He? I mean, at age 12, Mary and Joseph went, left Him in Jerusalem, didn't realize they had. They had to go back sorrowing to find Him. They found Him sitting there with the doctors of the law, uh, answering their questions, asking them questions, and they couldn't believe the wisdom that he had. He mystified his parents. When his enemies sent people to arrest him 30 years later, or 22 years later, they came back empty-handed saying, never man spake like this man. His wisdom overwhelmed them. Jesus was anointed with the sevenfold Spirit of God at his baptism, and part of that sevenfold spirit, as it's found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, is the spirit of counsel and of might. Please observe, and this blessed as I meditated upon this, and I think you ladies were studied this as well recently. Have you ever thought about the fact that no one counsels God the Father? No one gives him any advice. In Romans 11, verse 34, the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 13. He also says this to the Corinthians, and he asks the rhetorical question, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, and who hath been His counselor? What's the understood answer to that question, class? No one. No one. No one counsels God. But Jesus is in the secret counsel of the Godhead, and He hears what the Godhead says, and He knows the divine will for you and for me. Aren't you glad He's willing to relay that? We get into deep trouble, folks, when we rush ahead and do something without asking the counsel of God. As a pastor here for 
at least on the staff for 24 years, coming up January 1. I've seen this happen so many times. Sometimes you can see it happening, and you just can't say anything. People don't ask the counsel of God. They just rush ahead and do what their flesh tells them to do. Oh, can't we learn from the Word of God? Remember what happened when Joshua was deceived by the Gibeonites? They were these people that were in Canaan, and they were going to be exterminated along with the others when God let His people overrun the land, possess it. So they pretended that they were people from a far place, and they had moldy bread, and they had clout rags for shoes. And they came and said, we've heard the fame of you, Joshua, and all your people, and we want to make peace with you. We live in a distant place. And Joshua and the people looked at the shoes and looked at the moldy bread, and they didn't even pay any attention to God. They didn't check with God. They believed the story of these people, and they made a league with them, promised that they wouldn't exterminate them, and that came back to haunt them in future centuries. They spared their lives. I think of what the wise men in the Old Testament did, not the wise men that we speak of at Christmas time, but the wise men of Israel what they would do before they undertook some action, if they weren't sure what the will of God was. You remember what they did? They would ask for the priest to come. And they would say, bring hither the ephod. And the priest would put the urim and the thummim on. We don't know exactly what that was. That's a very curious thing. It means lights and perfections. And he would appeal to God on their behalf Many Bible scholars feel that if the answer was yes, that Urim and Thummim would shine brightly. If the answer was no from God, it would be clouded over. But God made known His mind, and His children sought for it. Oh, how many times I've seen God's children get in trouble when they make a hasty decision to make a change. I've seen them change churches change jobs, change spouses, change their long God-honored convictions. One thing I've noticed is to a man or to a lady, they always say, oh, I prayed about it and I have peace. I prayed about it. You know, God gets blamed for a lot of things He did do. He really does. Almost makes you want to feel sorry for God, but we don't need to. It's easy. Please listen to me because I love you folks. I'm not scratching an itch this morning. This is not a pet peeve. I want to keep you from having untold heartache in your life. It's easy to interpret any favorable circumstance as God's confirmation of something you want to do. When Paul was on board that ship with 275 other prisoners, he told them, don't, don't, don't launch from the island they were on, where they wintered. But they believed the captain of the ship, the skipper, the one who probably designed the ship more than they believed Paul. And here's what the Bible says in the book of Acts. It says, when the south wind blew softly, they supposed they had gained their purpose. And it's easy to find some 
aspect, some token in our lives where of a favorable circumstance, and we say, see, God's telling me to do that. When he ain't. Have we really come to the place where we wait upon God? Where we renounce our will? We seek to do like George Mueller used to do. We still talk about George Mueller, but he didn't do it like a lot of us did. He would pray about a proposed course of action for weeks and not even tell his wife because he wanted to make sure he had no will of his own, only wanted to do God's will. And his exploits are well documented. We're still talking about him today. But we don't want to do like he did. May God help us. Jesus' name is Wonderful Counselor. He's willing to make known the mind of God to us if we'll wait upon him. Wonderful, mighty God. That's the next title. The fact that Jesus was the Son of God in no way diminishes the fact that he was equal with God. Please don't let the JWs tangle with you about that. He demonstrated that mighty power even after he gave up his own life on Calvary by raising, rising, I should say, from the dead. He had announced that that's what he would do. He said in John chapter 10, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In his earthly ministry, as it, before he healed the paralytic man who was lowered on a stretcher by four men who broke up the roof, he testified that he had power on earth to forgive sins. But how do you see that? How can you tell that sins have been forgiven right on the spot? You can't. So he says, but, so he's, he said that first to the man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then he says, but the, the, ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And he did. Jesus testified that he had authority to execute judgment as the Son of Man. Oh, at Christmas time, often we have the nativity scene here. We didn't this year because it was just too hard to move everything for all the programs. But we have that model of a baby in a manger, cuddly, little sweet image representing Jesus. But may I remind you that when he comes again, He's not going to look like that. He's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be the one from whose face the earth and the heaven will flee away, whose eyes and whose hair are as a burning fire, whose feet are as burnished brass, whose voice is like the sound of many waters. He demonstrated even in his earthly life that he had the power that Adam had before he fell in Eden. The power God promised Adam, power over fish, fowl, and beast. Isn't that amazing? Jesus proved that even before he was glorified. Power over fish, yeah. When it came time to pay the temple tax, he told Peter, just go out there and put your hook in the water. Don't need any bait. First fish that comes out, just see what's in its mouth. How in the world he hooked that fish that had a coin in its mouth? I will find out someday. But that coin was exactly what was needed to pay the tax for, for Peter and for Jesus. He had power over fish. What about fowl? 
greatest sermon on repentance was not preached by a human in Jesus' day. It was preached by a rooster. Jesus had told his disciple, before that cock crows, you're going to deny me thrice. Don't you know that rooster wanted to crow before he did? But Jesus wouldn't let him. He controlled him. Power over beasts. Came time to ride into the city of Jerusalem. Thousands were there for the feast day. Little children were there lining the streets. You would have thought Jesus would say, fellas, go get a a tame, docile animal. I don't want anybody to get hurt. That's not what he said at all. He said, go get a donkey on which no man has ever ridden. He hasn't been broken yet. Why? Because Jesus controlled that donkey. He proved that he had what Adam had before he fell. His disciples could only exclaim with awe when he calmed the winds and the waves. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Wonderful, mighty God. Oh, the folly of men who stopped short of calling Jesus the mighty God. Please don't be deceived by them. Like the Muslims, they're more than willing to call him a great prophet, but they stop short of saying the mighty God. Our Jehovah Witness friends will concede that he is the Son of God, that he's the greatest created angel that there ever was, but he was not the uncreated God, they say. You can't be saved if you believe that. This is no mere academic point. Jesus said in John chapter 8, twice, not once but twice, if you believe not that I am, the word he is in italics, it's not there. He says, if you believe not that I am the I am that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the great I am of the Old Testament, ye shall die in your sins. Let's be honest with the claims of Christ, folks. As the great C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is the one he claimed to be. He cannot be a good man if he isn't who he said he was. And if he is who he said he was, you better fall down and worship him. Dear child of God, the literal meaning here in the Hebrew of the mighty God is, this is interesting, The literal meaning is this, God the hero, God the champion. Has he proved himself to you that way? I hope so. I mean, he went foot to foot with Satan in the wilderness and he came out uh, uh, victorious. When the wicked traitor Judas came with a cohort of temple police to arrest Jesus in the garden after he'd agonized in Gethsemane. Jesus said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus answered, he said, I am he. There he is again, the I am. At the power of that name, when he said, I am, they fell backward to the ground, hundreds of them. This wasn't just one or two. After he died, he descended into the cold grave of Joseph of Arimathea, where no body had ever been buried. But the appointed hour arrived, and like a celestial Samson, he snapped the bands of death as if they were but toe and came forth to prove that he was the Lord of life and glory. 
Has he proved himself to you to be the mighty God? If you're saved, you ought to be able to say yes. All those innumerable sins that he's forgiven you for his name's sake. He's relieved your conscience of the guilt. Innumerable griefs he has consoled. Innumerable temptations he has overcome. Virtues that you thought were impossible he has established in you. Grace in full measure he has given you. If you know him as your Savior, you ought to know him as the mighty God. You of all people should be able to fall down at his feet and say that. You are the mighty God. None but God could have done what he has done for you. Oh, the mystery of the incarnation. The mighty God became a child. We're not done with the wonderfuls. Wonderful everlasting Father. You may have a note in your Bible or you may have a translation that says the Father of eternity, and that's correct. Jesus existed before time began. And I want to remind you that he will live on when time shall be no more and the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And he didn't mean just one in majesty, as our Jehovah Witnesses friend, friends allege in their bias against Christ's deity. He meant one in essence. Yes, Jesus is the Father of eternity, by which we mean that he possesses eternity as an attribute. Jesus is not the child of eternity. Eternity is what he brought forth. Wonderful. Because he calls forth from our hearts wonder. Now to call him the mighty God, let's be careful here to maintain a distinction of persons. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, though there's just one God. The text here is not stating otherwise, that he is the mighty God. It's not indicating the relation of deity to itself. Listen carefully. It is indicating the relation of Jesus Christ to us. To us, Jesus is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He condescends to us to use speech that we can relate to. We often use the word father in a sense that someone is the founder or the inventor our children learn in our school about the founder of our country. Who was he? Tell me quick. Who's the founder of America? Oh, man, it's real weak. We need history retaught here. I don't know what kind of revisionist history you've been getting, but it's George Washington, okay? George Washington is the founder of our country. Thomas Edison is, is the father of the light bulb. Alexander Graham Bell is the father of the telephone. Gregor Mendel is the father of genetics. We can come on into the religious realm that we use the same language. William Carey is considered the father of modern missions. Henry Morris, and I use his study Bible, and Brother Larry Heyman's dad was the late Don Heyman, a personal friend. Henry Morris was considered the father of modern-day creationism. 
John Nelson Darby, the father of dispensationalism, and on and on we could go. We use the word father in that sense. And so in this sense, Jesus Christ is the father of all Christians. He's the father of Christianity. He's the father of the entire system in which grace reigns through righteousness. But he is not, Larry, you're listening, he is not the father spiritually of the man who's never been born again. I know that song is popular, and it's sung by all the big chorales. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be, with God as our Father, brothers all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. And people get all teary singing that song, and it's a lie. Thank you. It's a lie. Jesus said, you have your father, the devil. The lust of your father, you will do. I didn't say that. Jesus did. He gives life to those who are born again from above. Oh, if you know him as your Savior, he's your father as well. Everything in us calls out Father. He's the wonderful Prince of Peace. The angels proclaim to the Judean shepherds on that first Christmas night, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Paul said in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus not only gives us peace, but that He is our peace. He has broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, symbolized by that wall that was in Herod's temple separating the court of the Gentiles from the Jewish precincts. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the great peacemaker. He made peace through the blood of His cross. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself as He hanged there on that cross. He took the rap for our sins. And because He did, God has been satisfied toward us. God's been propitiated. One day, the full extent of His glorious character will be seen as He comes again as the Prince of Peace. He's going to put down all rebellion fomented by the Antichrist. He'll inaugurate an era of perfect peace. Yes, it's going to literally happen. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be no need for AK-47s, for armies and tanks and bombers and missiles. With all that's going on in the world that we hear on a daily basis, that's hard to even imagine, isn't it? And as it has often said, been said, there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. But when He comes into your heart, there is a wonderful peace there. Peace with God. No fear of hell. Some people have nightmares about going to hell. I did as a little kid. I, I felt like I was dropping off into hell and I would wake up right before I hit the bottom. I don't have those. I haven't had them for decades. Wonderful peace. Peace with our fellow man. Peace with ourselves. So I ask you, what is his son's name? Emmanuel, wonderful, wonderful counselor, wonderful mighty God, wonderful everlasting Father, wonderful Prince of Peace. 
Let me hasten with just a couple of names. It, it, it just now turned 11 o'clock. Look, it, it's just now to, time to start our service. You knew that, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still going strong. What is his son's name? His name is Jesus. That was his human name given by the angel to Joseph in a dream. We read that passage already. Would you allow me to say the words again if you wish to turn there? Matthew 1.21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Savior. For he shall save his people from their sins. That wasn't the first time the angel had said that the name of the Christ child would be Jesus. Gabriel told Mary that in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. This was a, a common name for Jewish boys. This was not a unique name. Even today, uh, we have Hispanic people that name their child Jesus. Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua or Jehoshua. It means Jehovah saves or Jehovah our Savior. How excitedly the angels told the shepherds on that first Christmas night, for unto you is born this day in the city of David right there nearby Bethlehem. Unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Many folks here today haven't heard me say it. You don't have to have a Ph.D. from seminary in theology to conclude from that somebody somewhere needs saving. And you know who that somebody is? Every one of us. Because we're all sinners, separated from God. His name should be called Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from hell? No. Yes, he does save from hell, but that's not what it says. For he shall save his people from Rome? Oh, how the Jews despised the Roman occupation. The Roman flag flew from the temple portico. That's not what he says. For he shall save his people from their sins. That's our greatest need, folks. Whether we acknowledge it, but it's our felt need or not, it's our greatest need. What is his son's name? Jesus, Savior. Have you experienced that salvation? Listen. Christ could be born a thousand times in Bethlehem's manger, but would do you absolutely no good until he is born in you, a Savior from sin. Well, there's just a flurry of other names that are related. Christ, that's a title, of course, the Son of God, the Son of the highest, Lord. All of those are so meaningful. Let me just pick one of them, the son of the highest. Gabriel announced to Mary that her baby would not only be called Jesus, but that he would be called the son of the highest there in the Annunciation that we read a few moments ago, verse 32 of Luke chapter 1. That title, son of the highest, is a very interesting one. It's found in the Old Testament. It's very familiar to Jewish, the Jewish mind, a title given to God. When was it first given? If you go back to the story of Abraham when he came back from the slaughter of the kings and rescued Lot and all the inhabitants of Sodom and got all of their possessions back, God revealed himself to Abraham as El Elyon, the Most High God. 
And that is found throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's used to define God as the supreme being. May I remind you, and this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it, no one is higher than God. He is sovereign. You need to fear Him above everybody else. If you fear man and not God, you're in trouble. And Jesus is the most high God. He's already king. He's already prophet and priest. Oh, to be sure, when He came the first time, He didn't set up a physical kingdom on earth, as the late Chuck Colson famously said. When Jesus arrived, His kingdom didn't arrive on Air Force One. When He returns, He'll set up a physical kingdom. Right now, his, his kingdom is a spiritual one. He reigns in the hearts of his subjects. One day, he'll return to this earth with great power and pomp. And he'll be the king of kings. He already is, but he'll manifest himself as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. Isn't it interesting? He was born the king of the Jews. That's what the Magi said when they came to Jerusalem and they said to Herod, and that made Herod tremble. Uh, king? I thought I was a king. And Herod has been trembling in hell for 2,000 years. And he will yet stand before the one that he tried to snuff out as a toddler, and he will be judged and then consigned to the lake of fire. Jesus is the king. He's Lord. One more thing, I have to get to this one. What is his son's name? The Word of God. The Word of God. In that matchless prologue to the Gospel of John, we're introduced to the Logos, the Word of God. Amazing, John's Gospel is the only one of the four that does not share any details about Christ's birth. He just simply expresses it in one majestic golden phrase, all monosyllables there in verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word was made flesh. How majestic. The Word. We express our thoughts in words, and Jesus is the expression of God. He came to reveal the Father because no man has seen God at any time. So the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He's the one that has to declare Him. He was the Word before He ever came to Bethlehem. Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. He just changed addresses. And when He came to this earth, He did not lose anything. He just added something. He added humanity. And He's still the Word of God. That's a name that will stick with Him forever. In Revelation 19, verse 13, we read a vivid description of Him as He comes again from heaven. He is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. This is the written Word. Jesus Christ is the living Word. You can't have one without the other. Together they comprise the binomial Word of God. Have you received the living Word, Jesus? Augur, you asked what is His name? What is God's Son's name? The answer is He's so indescribably 
great. It takes many names to comprehend him. And it will take all eternity to ponder the rich meaning. So as you go home today and celebrate with your family, or come back this afternoon, I hope, first, let me urge you to do this. Let me urge you to do what Mary did as she took in what was happening and she understood much of the Old Testament scriptures. Just ponder these things in your heart. Ponder them in your heart. Will you take the time to do that? Will you worship and adore the incarnate Christ? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, help us to to glory in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. We confess that in him alone we have eternal life. No one else can forgive sins. It's in him alone that we have reconciliation with a holy, offended God. It's in Christ alone that we have peace, that we have a hope beyond the grave that we have an inheritance undefiled in heaven. And we say it from our hearts, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. On this Christmas Eve Sunday, Lord, help us to examine our foundation for hope and make sure it is anchored in the name, the character, the nature, and the work of Jesus Christ. Would you help some lost sinner, someone undone, guilty, hell-bound to make room in their heart this morning for the one that found no room in the inn when he was born 2,000 years ago? Well, thank you. We'll praise you with all the angels. In Jesus' name, amen.